My name is Jacob Stoops. And I'm Jeff Luella. And you're listening to the Page Two Podcast. This is our podcast about the people of the SEO industry. We chronicle the real life stories, experiences, challenges, and advice from some of the most amazing people in the business. Today, we talk with Alicia A.K. Anderson, former Associate Director of SEO at WebMD, former Head of SEO at HipCamp, and currently a freelance SEO. We discuss her path to SEO, discuss her pursuit of a PhD in mythological studies, discuss SEO news including PageSpeed, talk about Google's acquisition of Fitbit, discuss the importance of SEO education, and exactly what makes a good SEO teacher, and so much more. So get your popcorn ready as we tell Alicia's SEO story and have another great roundtable discussion. Hey, everybody. This is Jacob Stoops, and we are back for the 30th episode of the Page 2 podcast. We somehow have managed to stumble our way to 30 episodes. Uh, I am here with Jeff. Hello, everybody. Who we forgot to introduce last time, and I didn't (laughs) want to make that mistake again. And we are also here with Alicia, A.K. Anderson. How are you doing, Alicia? Doing really well. And Alicia is, right now she's a contractor, but she's a former uh, head of SEO at HipCamp, as well as an associate director of WebMD. So a lot of really, um, really amazing uh, experience uh, coming from, from Alicia's side. Thank you for having me today. You're welcome. So I hear by reading your Twitter bio that you are a storyteller, so... Tell me a story. Tell me a story. How did you get into to SEO? Tell me about yourself. Um, let the listeners know. Who, who are you? So um, in the early to mid-2000s, mid um, I was working for Bell South, which if you don't live in the South, it was originally take, it was taken over by AT&T. Um, and in that time period, uh, I was a billing manager and I was doing data analysis, uh, SQL database queries and dealing with data at a very minute dollars and cents level to the point where the big project I did was how to round or truncate your um, minutes into dollars. It was ridiculously detailed. Um, I made the career decision that I wanted to work more in Word than Excel. I said, I want to write. I want to do something that's creative. I'm I'm tired of all this data, which is (laughs) Um, because I then ended up in SEO. Um, But where I ended up going with that urge was this was in the the era of the bygone days of uh, pre-panda of content firms. And you could write content on the internet and make like a pittance for any number of sites. And it was how I I went about gaining work experience in SEO. Um, Because what I was able to do was create web content and then track how it performed. And one of the specific sites actually had SEO training and SEO experts working 
for them in like the forums and stuff like that. And they actually taught us how to do keyword research, how to track our progress, how to use keyword information for content strategy, like basic keyword information that um, in 2007 was kind of (laughs) avant-garde. And I discovered this whole realm of SEO as a job. Um, At that time, the AT&T takeover happened at Bell South, which is essentially the Jetsons taking over the Flint or the Flintstones taking over the Jetsons is, is how I would put that. Um, I did not want to go to the stone age. And so um, I took a package, I left. And with that extra money, um, I freelanced and basically worked my way as a web copywriter into learning SEO from agencies. Um, And then I started working in house from there. Uh, I've been working in-house for, uh, so I've been in SEO for 12 years, going on 13 years, uh, which I've seen everything from Hummingbird to, like, I've seen all the big updates, (laughs) um, which is kind of insane. And I actually focused on global SEO really early in my career, which is how I ended up at WebMD, because they needed somebody who understood global SEO for their UK co-brand. I was at WebMD for six years and um then i i actually got a chronic illness and couldn't handle the stress and couldn't handle like the massive amount of work that was um that was happening there and so i scaled back and i took on the job at hip camp as their head of seo for a year and a half as a remote job which was fantastic and it was exactly what i needed um at the same time, because I don't know how to like set limits, I, <laughs> I also started grad school. And so I was doing grad school and hip camp for a couple of years. And now I'm contracting and doing grad school at the same time. I've earned my master's. I'm now in the PhD program, again, because I don't know how to say slow down. Um, and yeah, I'm contracting and... Uh, enjoying it. I'm, I have about a dozen clients right now, some through an agency that I work with and some through personal contacts. Um, and it's been really, really interesting. Um, we were talking earlier uh, via email about my passions. And what I found is that in the last three or four years or so, I've really found a passion for training and teaching SEO and using training and teaching to get buy-in with stakeholders and to, um, you know, create SEO as part of the DNA of a, of a business instead of just kind of an afterthought. So let me ask you something. Uh, and I've got a lot of, there's a lot there, there, there in terms of (laughs) questions that I have. Um, I do first want to ask about, mythological studies <laughs> you're you're getting a, a phd in mythological studies so for those people myself included that don't know what that means it, explain it to us so um my program is the uh is of the lineage the academic lineage of joseph campbell um which is a concept of comparative mythology uh cross-cultural comparisons of mythologies as well as um kind of the underpinnings of what makes this culture way over here and that culture way over there have very similar myths and understanding did the myth just travel and they're telling the same myth or did it arise separately and this is a part of the human condition and a part of our psychology. Um, 
So that's essentially what mythological studies is. It's a global cross-cultural psychological look at, at myth. So I find it fascinating that an SEO is studying myths and mythological studies. Um, I guess I have to ask, what's the biggest SEO myth you've come across? (laughs) Um, The biggest SEO myth I've come across, honestly, I have an entire shelf that is nothing about, but that crossover, like technology as symptom and dream is the book I'm staring at Um, and internet dreams. Um, I think that as Google is attempting to meet human needs by using AI and and algorithmic answers, they're attempting to um, mimic human behavior and understand and, and break down human behavior online. And one of the myths that I think is happening is that the whole, like, you know, SEO and UX side where people are saying, um, you know, if you solve for UX, you'll solve for SEO 100% of the time. I, I believe that that's, um, that's like kind of my answer of if, if it comes down to doing this for the user or doing this for SEO, do it for the user. But at the same time, I feel like Google is not necessarily all the way there yet. And sometimes you really do have to spoon feed the Googlebot just a little bit Um, because solving for UX 100% still isn't going to get you there. Um, At the same time, I do think that Google is really trying to emulate the human response and so isn't, um, it, it doesn't make sense to speak to it as if it's a robot either. So it's like you're talking with you know, an Android or (laughs) data from Star Trek The Next Generation or something that has like somewhere in the middle. Yeah, I think this, um, it's, it's interesting. We, we live in an interesting time and space within, within SEO right now, where on one side, things are getting really, really advanced in terms of Google and other search engines, but mostly Google, their use of AI um, and their uh, ability to render websites, to understand um, the difference between very similar similar queries. And then on the other side, we've got um, sites that, yeah, I, get, I don't know, Jeff, you tell, you tell me, and um, Alicia, you tell me, like, I feel like a lot of the stuff I run up against when I'm helping clients is still incredibly, incredibly, incredibly basic. Like, we're helping them like learn how to walk when over here, you know, Google is, is, um, you know, very focused on to use an analogy, I guess, running. Um, they're focused on, on running when, um, there are many, many websites out there that are still just struggling to walk. And one of the things that I see very often is, um, things as simple as like your UX can be really, really great and you can have a beautiful website um, that consumers like, but if you're missing the content that people search for, um, you, you, you don't have a lot of chance to be successful. Like your site can be technically, I technically well optimized. I work, um, with a client that is, that is exactly this way. They've got a really good brand, a really technically well optimized site. 
um, but they're, they have been missing some key content. And until they've added that key content, they've been like, we don't, we don't get it. Why is an SEO quote unquote working? Well, sometimes in order to rank for something, you have to have a page for it. <laughs> right. Still, it's crazy. That's but if you're, thing. but if you're designing for customers, most customers don't like to read. <laughs> uh, I mean, it, you know, it, it, if you're looking for a research paper, yes. But when you're looking at a product, I think it's like you want a couple of points about it. And I think most of the time you're probably reading reviews. <laughs> um, but at the same time, it's, it's interesting because the design folks don't like to put lots of words onto pages because again, people don't want to be bogged down with all this content though. Google needs it to read. So I think it is one of those, um, it's not a, I'm not gonna say a battle. It's really becoming everyone get on the same page. Like, we have goals. We need to have traffic. <laughs> These are some things that Google needs. And at the same time, we have, um, you know, design needs, right? I, again, if it was up to SEOs, I think most of our websites would look like Wikipedia, <laughs> um, which is because we're like, hey, great. Here's a whole bunch of content. Um, so we, we need to have that, that balance there. So, Yeah, and I find with like um, B2C customers specifically right now, what I'm bumping up against is the what is it. Um, so many of the head terms, the ranking is educational. It's a what is query. It's an informational query. And that's where you want that Wikipedia page that is like a big long list of, of all the things you ever needed to know about this thing. And the issue is that most of these companies that are B2C are going, the, their decision makers and the people who are searching for them are people who already know what it is. And so to convince them that they need a what is it page in order to round out their content portfolio when their clients and customers and the people who are landing on their site already know what it is, it, that's that balance. That's that like, okay, but you kind of still need a what is it page. <laughs> yeah. Very high funnel, low conversion stuff. Introducer content, I like to call it, but not necessarily transactional content. Right. Yeah. Well, and that, and the thing is, is that that's not, that's not where their, their, their customer is, mm -hmm. um, but it's where the search traffic is. So yep. it's a very, it, it, it's absolutely something I bump into constantly. Yeah. I see that type of content and when, when I'm trying to sell it, I, I try to sell it obviously for the, the, um, that's where the search traffic is. And the question I get is, do I even want to rank for this? Um, and for me, like for the most part, the question is yes, because you're potentially, you know, running, uh, uh, exposing your brand to uh, a lot of different consumers and maybe one or maybe two or maybe three of those consumers will later on down the line, maybe not immediately, um, turn into customers because they weren't aware of your brand before. And now they are because they've read that piece of content, but, uh, yeah. Are, is everybody that hits that piece of content going to be a, a converter? No, definitely not. I think that there's a there's definitely a brand um, element. There's a marketing element to the brand there. The mm -hmm. other element of that that I see, and I see it even more now, is um, contextuality. We each site has an aboutness. It has a context, and what I find is that you have to have that what is it and you have to have that that established expertise in your field for that contextuality because ranking well for the what is it even if those visitors aren't converting will help you rank 
well for the things that the what is it is linking to. Yeah. And so I find that contextuality tends to be more of a, of a play there as well in a lot of those spaces, especially when it's a really complicated thing. <laughs> you know, we're the experts in this 50 word thing. It's like, okay, well, we need a what is it then? <laughs> I think this whole discussion really comprises, and I hate this word, but the EAT, uh, expertise, yep. authority, trust. Yeah, I think that building that full portfolio is um, all about establishing EAT, which I really hate that I'm using a buzzword, but I, but I am. Um, <laughs> to, go, to go back, I, I do want to go back because I, we got way down in the weeds and that's cool. I love getting in the weeds, like my favorite thing to do. Um, but you mentioned um, s- stress. And, and I think on the agency side, like it's a big giant ball of stress, stress all the time. Uh, especially now in the holiday in the holiday season, um, I, I also find it ironic that you were working at WebMD when you were having this stress and the and I in the in the in kind of the medical condition that you um, that you could that you mentioned. Um, so I guess talk to me about the process of what was working at WebMD like, and I'm just also thinking about other people that might be going through this. Um, how did that stress kind of come up for you and how did you deal with it? The stress was absolutely, um, uh, you know, a joint, uh, a joint effort in terms of my own inability to set limits and um, the demands of the company. Um, you know, I work, I work a good bit on the agency side right now and I find the stress levels very different. Um, I find the stress sores very different. Um, on the in-house side, what I find, it's funny, you, you said the irony about working at WebMD and that, that I was having health problems because of it. Um, in psychological terms, every, basically the concept is every time you invoke one thing, you also invoke its opposite. So WebMD invokes health and also invokes ill health. And, and I think that that's, that's part of what happens in the office culture. Um, you have to really have super strong boundaries and um, really set limits in any in-office environment. Um, I've worked in so many corporations where they, the corporation will eat you alive if you let it. And, um, and I think that's true of any employer these days with, you know, the way that our world works. Um, and I believe that part of it is about, is about that setting of limits. Um, one of the issues that I bumped into was adequate resource planning um, because I was the, the, the cycle of hiring help is so long. It's such a long ramp. And um, Jeff knows this, the Atlanta market is, we've got kind of a weird mix of people who have SEO experience. And so getting the right person to hire in the Atlanta market is, is tricky as well. Um, and so that long ramp of resource, getting the right person in often happens eight months after the project started. 
And then you've got to train them and they have a six month ramp up and now the project is in full swing and you're like, good, allow me to overwhelm you. (laughs) (laughs) And um, I think that, that honestly, my own, you know, that just the resource planning of understanding where the business was going so quickly and then having that kind of lead time for resource planning was a big part of it. Um, Another big part of it for me specifically was there's a battle um, especially with a, a publicly traded company, WebMD was taken over and is now privately owned uh, in since I left. But at the time, it was it was beholden to the quarterly shareholder reviews, and it was a publicly traded company. And I find with publicly traded companies that that quarterly shareholder review, we've got to show what we're doing to show our value and show our growth um, every single time is actually incredibly toxic. Um, the, the stock, the stock shareholder kind of market of, of growth for growth's sake, um, always be growing is, is not sustainable. Um, that's why you have mergers and acquisitions. That's why you have like all of these other things. And I feel like it's cancerous, um, it, growth for growth's sake without really carefully growing where you want to grow is, is the definition of cancer, um, which again, haha, WebMD. Um, <laughs> funny side note, just so you know, um, while I was there, they, it was, a, I, I'm going to say this publicly and um, I'm far enough gone, they can't hurt me. Um, <laughs> it was a massive PR fail on their behalf, on their behalf because they did not own the memes um, they redid the symptom checker. Symptom checker 2.0 happened while I was there. And prior to symptom checker 2.0, the symptom checker, when you plugged in your stuff, was alp- alphabetized. So cancer came above everything because it was at the top of the freaking alphabet. Ooh. Now it's done by prevalence. And now you can get common cold and flu above cancer because it's done by prevalence. And so they recreated symptom checker to make it so that cancer wasn't at the top of everything. And this is like seven years ago and they never like owned it and said, Hey, you're not going to have cancer anymore. Um, (laughs) They never like played with it and said, this is what we can do. Like we symptom checker 2.0, it's not alphabetical anymore. Like for me as as like an internet marketer i'm like oh that's such a loss like that's such a waste to to not just own the funny and go with it um but anyway the <laughs> the the growth for growth sake model is really really hard for any seo team um because first of all seo takes time a lot of our efforts it's like yeah you'll see that effort in 3 quarters so what have you been doing this month well what I did a year ago or what so-and-so screwed up two years ago. And so, so you, that growth pattern for, for those traded companies can be the source of so much stress when it's unrealistic. And then it comes down to messaging and it comes down to, can your C-suite hear those messages? Um, can you adjust what you're saying? How do you talk about those things? Like that, that becomes a whole nother, another ball of wax. Um, getting out of that pattern for me was really, really important in terms of stress, just getting out of the not having enough help 
in the right time and getting out of the pattern of the growth for growth's sake was really, really important. Um, I, I used to prefer in-house because I liked seeing the long-term results. And right now I'm really enjoying agency because I can go, here's all of the things that you need to fix. Bye. (laughs) And I don't have to wait for that, but we're not growing every quarter, um, which is actually quite a relief, honestly. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it, it, it can be a relief. I, I, I do sometimes want to see things all the way through to the end. And um, on the agency side, if the clients don't necessarily see that growth or at least are aligned with your vision of when the growth will happen, um, I have plenty of clients that have been like, you know, cut your contract because we haven't seen the growth we wanted to see. So well, that's stressful on the agency side. But if you're aligned with the client and, and, I think it's is the best side of things in the agency world just because one, you get to, to do a whole bunch of different, like you get problems thrown at you all the time and you get to, you know, try to solve those problems, which is great. Um, but sometimes I do feel like I, I walk on eggshells a lot with clients because one, you don't want to call someone else's baby ugly, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, even if they're paying you for it. Um, and I've worked at some large agencies where we made the ugly baby and, and I got to then tell them that our team, we made the ugly baby. Um, it's, it is interesting in that approach too. So. so you guys are touching on kind of an interesting point that I feel like we deal with all the time. So like, I'm just going to give um, a little bit of kind of a case in point. So I've got two clients, one of which, um, I don't want to give away too much information, but I'll say client A, we've been working with for a while off and on by their choice uh, and their traffic because of our recommendations is growing wildly, but because they, they, I don't even know exactly what, like can't see it. Like they can see their traffic growing wildly, but I think that there's, a belief that maybe it wasn't due to us or our recommendations or all, all of that. So there's that um, on one side. And on the other side, there's another client where we've had a very successful year and we've overcome a lot of challenges and their team is very, very small, but we've made progress, but it's not yet the type of progress that has produced tangible results from a traffic standpoint. It's a lot of coming out of nowhere and getting right on the cusp of doing great things because you were nowhere before. And the next phase is going to be moving from being on the cusp to pushing it into a position where the tangible results will start to show. It's a lot of stuff happening below the surface. And I have a great relationship with that client. And like, there's no doubt that they're going to continue to to work with us. Um, And it's just the juxtaposition client A doesn't really want to work with us and they're getting great results. Client B results aren't there yet. Loves working with us. We have a great relationship and it's just like this world in that we live in is, is insane. And sometimes the, the thing that you think should be true is not always true. And it leaves me kind of with the question, how do you best come in? This deviates from the stress question, but how do you, (laughs) and this actually does stress me out and keep me up at night how do you do a good job of messaging the real story of what's actually going on when the C-suite only looks at vanity metrics and sometimes doesn't even look at 
at that, um, or when the C-suite doesn't know the full story and is coming to you with whatever they believe to be the truth, whether it is or not, like, how do you deal with that? How do you get them to see the light? How do you build that, build that dam and build that relationship? Um, so one thing, um, that just, that is a little bit tangential about your question or the, about your, what you were saying is the, the client that you've got, that you've got that great relationship that is not showing results yet. I have one like that, that I worked with for six months and what I do, because this was my personal client, not an agency thing. Um, every six months I check, I go back into all of their metrics and check everything and send them an update and go, this is what you're working on. This is what you should do next. Like, and I do it for free. Um, you know, because they can hire me to help them with those action items, but it allows me to, you know, a little bit selfishly look at the data and go, ha ha, it worked. Um, and get that little, that little boost of dopamine. Um, but also it's a great way to, to kind of resell to clients that do work well with you in that kind of agency world. Um, in terms of getting C-suite on board when they only look at vanity metrics, um, so that's a combination of two things. One is you give them the fucking vanity metrics. Um, <laughs> um, and if you can get other stuff that really has to happen in order to give them those vanity metrics, great. Um, one of the things that I've spoken about on multiple occasions is translate your, your goals into their monopoly money. Um, like do a currency conversion. If their vanity metric is something you don't care about, but you can currency convert your metric into theirs, do it. Um, and I say to do this, this is what I did across departments. I did this across clients. Um, if this department really only cares about lead gen and, you know, this one specific form, then I am going to use approximations and percentages and ratios to say, if you let me do this project, it's going to give you five leave gen forms on this form for every, you know, widget we move or whatever. Um, just kind of backing into those metrics that even if they're a little nonsensical, just using percentages to keep like getting there. Um, the other thing about the vanity metrics, I, I have a lot of clients that want to rank for kind of, um, ridiculous uh, keywords that are not um, that are important to their marketers but are or sales team but are not important like they've got 50 searches a month or something like like less than that and you're like really okay <laughs> let's go spend all our time on that um, <laughs> um, and honestly the way that I would do that is looking for those win-wins of okay we're gonna try to rank for this thing they really want to rank for that is kind of ridiculous and we're going to simultaneously make these lesson learns worked over here where it actually is gonna move the needle um, sometimes it is about education sometimes it is about teaching the c-suite what's going on um, I've done more than one high-level two, four-slide long um, presentations that are, this is what's happening, here are the numbers, this is why I'm, I'm telling you this is what matters. Mm -hmm. Because sometimes it is your job to change the focus. Sometimes it is your job to, 
educate and and that's that's super challenging it's super challenging to take somebody that has um the like minutest amount of of attention span and you've got their their attention for like five minutes and you've got to go what you think matters doesn't matter here's what matters in that five minutes and that's um very 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 difficult and i think that's where the the difference between an seo specialist and an seo manager comes in um people with management skills and people who are are at the management level are going to be able to drill down a bit more rapidly in that way yeah i always say um finding the things to fix is um is not the difficult part getting things implemented is the difficult part and the even more difficult part is proving your your value um when in some cases it's it's not clear or telling your story and i feel like um talking to executives and c levels um or you know, vp or what whatever higher ups uh, leadership within um within a company is something that like I don't feel like anyone starts off as a natural at Mm-mm. doing doing that. I think it it takes a while, and I find myself even kind of um, deeper into the um, into the experience side of things. Like I've been doing this for a long time, and there are times when I still just don't know what I need to say to make them understand, and it almost becomes a bit of a psychological exercise where you have to play out different scenarios and put yourself in their shoes and try to predict what they want to hear from you that will turn them in the way that you need them to be, to be turning. So my hack for that uh, was because I always, I was known for writing emails that were way too long. I was known for writing these like novel emails and you guys are both laughing and I know that you, you totally understand those, those like super, super long emails. So I will write that email with all of the because this and here's the data for that and here's this and here's that. And then I will write the TLDR and put that at the top. Like, because we're, we're used to doing that, right? That's like part of our world is doing the TLDR, right? Then I will take that entire email and save it to word (laughs) and send the executive only the TLDR. (laughs) And that tends to be exactly what you needed to say. And then often they're like, do you have further data about blah, blah, blah? And you're like, yes, I do. Because you've already done all that homework. (laughs) That's a great approach. So so Jeff, I want to, I want to put a pause on this and then I want to get back um, into kind of the teaching aspect. What's in the news? Cool. So uh, one of the big things, okay. It's one of the big things we had this week. Uh, Google, I mean, Google's really been focusing on PageSpeed, right? So last week and probably the week before we talked about PageSpeed going into Google Search Console. Um, But now they're actually looking to build badging into Chrome to let people know that sites are slower or faster than, you know, the average um, bear, I guess. (laughs) Uh, So it's, it's interesting because Again, I'm always trying to push my clients to be faster. Um, and this is a, another approach that Google is taking to say, hey, your sites aren't fast enough. Now we're going to alert the world 
just like they do with HTTPS and you're not secure. Um, so again, try, another thing I can show my clients to say, like, this is really serious this time. I know before I said it was serious and then now like, but you know, nothing changed <laughs> now that, you know, it, now Google, it's really serious. <laughs> yeah. Now it's really serious because now you're going to get like a red X next to your site or something that, that says that you're slow. So um, I, I really do think that, that, page speed is important and I'm kind of running a study now trying to look at a whole bunch of e-commerce sites and, and where they are in page speeds. Um, though sometimes it's hard to get those metrics right. So I hope that when Google get, tells somebody that their site is slow, that they actually get the right metrics there because I am noticing about out of 150 e-com retailers that I'm looking at, uh, there are about 20 of them that are giving me inconsistent data inside of Google's PageSpeed Insights um, using their API. Sometimes I'll get 100, and I'm like, why is this site giving me 100 right now? And that's because they got a page that was blank. <laughs> and like, hey, we have no JavaScript. This page must be fast. <laughs> but then I rerun it, and then I get a, a 36. So um, I, I'm just hoping that we get those metrics down before we actually start putting people on blast. I have a question for you guys about page speed. This is a, actually something that's come up multiple times. Um, you know, the whole, is it important? Is it really important? Is it really, really important now? However, no site I've been on has cracked the nut of actually having a fast site that does all the things they want it to do. Mm -hmm. um, my question for you guys is one of the things that I've been feeling for a while is that it really depends on the competition that it's that benchmarking the page speed across the competition is more valuable um if everybody in your competition has a 35 and you have a 40 you're probably okay um if everybody in your competition has a 75 and you have a 30 you need to pay attention to it right um that's been my approach uh more recently what do you guys think in terms of, of the fact that nobody's going to have a perfect score right so i've I, that's actually part of the reason I'm kind of putting together this little study that I, I hope to have. Um, one, it's holiday season. Everyone thinks about e-commerce, but so many of my e-commerce clients I deal with kind of go that route, right? I, I, I run a report and I'm like, you got a 45, you know, we, we should be at least by the 80s. And then I run it against their six competitors and they're doing better than their six competitors. So I, and e-commerce is also tough, right? Because you, you have lots of images. And if, you know, for, for designing for customers, customers don't want 10 products on a page. You know, they want to have more because they don't want to have to keep, or, you know, keep clicking next. So it's one of those where it, I think industry specific. I also think it is competition specific. Um, mm -hmm. Though I have found a couple that were, you know, I'll, I'll just put one out there, Ikea. They're getting like close to 100 all around. Um, with, with their reports. And I got to dig a little bit deeper into them. Like, why are they doing that? Um, but it's, it's, they seem to have really great scores while some other ones, um, like I, I was kind of laughing that like Dollar Tree gets a one and it's like a $1 store. So it's kind of, it's ironic there. But um, in general, like I, I think the industry is somewhere in the middle, right? You have those outliers, but for the most mm -hmm. part, everyone's getting between a 40 and a 60 uh, or something like that where no one's crushing it. Um, but yes. I think, again, as a consultant, we're always like, we want to be the top of the bunch where we get the benefits of it, right? Before mm -hmm. everyone put schema on their website, you had that big benefit of getting some, you know, stars in your reviews. Mm -hmm. um, now everyone's doing it and Google's cutting it back because 
they can't have everybody have an enhanced listing, right? So mm-hmm. it's one of those things where I think getting ahead of it is one great for your customers, but you know, not even thinking about rankings, thinking about like your customer experience. Um, you know, that it's really great that way. But on top of that, now it's a ranking factor and Google's really trying to uh, push that inside of the search. You know, yeah. and this is one of the ways of doing it by having it again, it's just in Chromium right now, but they're one of those things like once it gets pushed live, your, your site could be put on blast. So watch out Dollar Tree. I've been, the thing I've dealt with, and I've been like fighting this uphill battle for years, and I don't know how many more hints Google can possibly give to say that it is important. Um, I mean, they've made it even a ranking factor. Now it's obviously not a big ranking factor, but it's a factor nonetheless. Um, I just don't know how many more bones they can continue to throw um, before people uh, decide or or finally come to the realization that it's that it's actually important and take it seriously, um, the thing that I even still to this day run into is just a high level of skepticism. And when you go to a client and say, "Hey, your page is getting like a forty on mobile page speed," they really look at me and it's almost like a "So what? What does that really mean?" Um, or where was that test from? Because everybody knows Google uses a lot of uh, lab uh, and industry industry data. So like you don't get to specify like device type or location that you're testing from like you can with a web page test. And even with that, they're, they're still skeptical. Uh, so there's, for whatever reason, a lot of skepticism. Um, I, I will say that in the few times that I've been able to convince um clients that this is the right thing to do. It, it came down to money uh, and putting the, putting the money like very clearly on the table and showing them how much money they were losing by not improving. There's any number of studies that talk about the effect of the inverse relationship between load time and conversion rate and, and revenue. The higher your load time goes, the worse the 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 worse your conversion rate is and the the less revenue that you get in the door and i remember like clear as day sitting in a meeting with a huge huge uh, hospitality client um, at another agency and telling them and even when i made these numbers up i felt like these are ridiculous numbers but then i realized like the scale no this could actually be this could actually be right um i told them like hey your conversion rate is here and this is how much revenue you get from that. I think by increasing your speed, your conversion rate could be here and should be here. And this is how much revenue you would gain. And it was in the realm of millions and they laughed me out of the room and didn't take me seriously. And I was like, I was so mad. (laughs) I was so furious. Um, But then they partnered with a, um, a vendor who specializes in, Uh, speed and helping people fix speed because they finally started to think maybe there's something to this. And the vendor who does this all the time for a living actually said that estimate was actually low. It's worth more. Um, And finally, they started taking little old me seriously. And a lot of other recommendations went through a lot of, you know, way easier, but it was, it was nice vindication. But for whatever reason, like, I just don't get it. People don't take this seriously. And it's really hard. Don't get me wrong. Speed is really hard and really complex, but like people don't take it seriously and I don't get why. I think that you just nailed it on the head that it's really hard. 
it's yeah. resource allocation and you have, um, so going back to my hip camp days, we had an engineering team of, you know, between six and 10 engineers at any time focusing on any number of projects and to focus on page speed would take away focuses on, you know, fixing the shopping cart or the mobile site or this part or that part or, you know, this new thing that we're creating. And that conversion into money, putting it in the, in the monopoly money that they care about, that conversion into the dollars and cents that they care about still isn't enough to warrant taking that engineer's time to, because the, the other thing is, is that the engineers are looking at, like they, they do all the low-hanging fruit, right? And mm -hmm. then they look at the stuff that's left and they're like, that's going to take weeks. And the person who's running that team goes, I can't have a person tied up for weeks on page speed when we don't know what the ROI is and we don't know mm -hmm. what this is. And, and like, how is that worth it? And, and then it just comes down to the ROI equations, really. Um, having the inverse relationship of conversions absolutely is a huge part of it. Also, the bounce rate is a huge part of it. That's part of what I use to talk about it. Um, you know, it, but it does often come down to not that they don't take it seriously, but that they don't, that it's not as serious enough to allocate the resources that it would take mm -hmm. to fix it because it is so site-wide. It is so endemic. It's not like you can just fix one page. It's not like you can just like pull a couple of levers. These are, these are like, you've got to restructure your JavaScript. Have fun. There are some basics. Pages and all of them have giant images. Have, tell right. your trainer to have fun. Go fix them all. <laughs> and that's yeah. saying there, there are some things you can do that are basic, like giant images. Right. I have, you know, one client who continually in their main navigation, they have a dropdown where they put a little image on the bottom of the dropdown and it changes monthly. And it's, it's always two or three megabytes in size for some reason. Right. And it's on every single page throughout the whole site. Um, and once like I, I put a ticket into their ticketing system, we get it fixed next month, the designer uploads another one that's set. So and that's it's where training and process is so, Indeed. so valuable. Exactly. And education is awesome because a lot of times I'm personally dealing with so-and-so who works in this department. Um, sometimes it's the tech team. Sometimes it's the marketing team. Never is it the design and like the design team. <laughs> so it's like one of those where, and, and designers, nobody wants to really be, be told what to do. I used to be a developer and um, SEOs used to come to me with their list of keywords and title tags. And I was just like, get out of here. Like, you know, I'm trying to solve the world here, you know, by coming up with new fancy ways to code a site. And um, then once I moved over to the SEO world, it's like, oh, you know, I mean, that's again, things that we need to do, but there's so much other things. And um, I wrote like a 27 page document for my one client who kept on having those issues just about image optimization in general. And I, I kind of white labeled it. So I give it to any client. Um, but at the same time, it's like, this is one thing we could do on our site, which shouldn't take any tech time. It's just once we learn that process, we can update our images and we'll save three seconds or, or whatever that would be. So, so this is um, why I'm glad that there are services like Cloudflare and Cloudinary um, is another one that are beginning to take this out of the designer who doesn't give uh, right. a, uh, a shit about page speed or anything. It's just trying to do their job, which is design uh, a beautiful site and uh, a beautiful image, whatever it is. Um, 
there are there are now tools that begin to automate that and i can't wait for them to become more pervasive within uh, the way people manage that pervasive probably not the right word but to expand uh into into the reality of the way that more people manage sites i think that automation and process is a very big important part of that however um one of the things that i learned was uh that empowering people to help you and to have them help you with your problem solving is probably the most effective thing you could do. Mm -hmm. So going back to WebMD, um, you know, it's a site that is really dependent upon SEO traffic. Um, and so our, our department had um, a little bit of clout. And so I was able to, to kind of swing that very gently into providing an SEO 101 for um, any new hire coming in the door. Because basically, the, the office where I sat in Midtown Atlanta had about 200, 300 people, and every single one of those people touched SEO in some way, shape, or form. They made my life good or bad, depending on their day. And I needed them to know that. I needed them to know that they were doing SEO regardless of whether they knew it or not. And so I did a little... Um, top hat and tails gig for new hires every couple of weeks i would i would go in and do this hour and essentially the whole hour was where our jobs intersect where you're doing seo and um when to call me and hi i'm friendly this is what i look like say hi to me in the break room and I'm such an introvert. It was really, really funny that I knew like the entire company because of this um, <laughs> so um the way that that shook out was that the managers of these teams would sit in on these on these classes and they would go oh this is amazing i want this for my entire my entire group and then i would get invited back to do a lunch and learn for the engineering team that was seo for engineers or a lunch and learn for the design team that was seo for designers and then i'm in the room with the entire design team for an hour and the the being able to show them okay file size this is what the difference in file size does this is what the file type and the way you're saving it does please do this this is what file image naming conventions matter you know and this is why this is what i keep asking you to do um this is how this actually integrates and works on the site and then this is how you're succeeding the key to all of it was not just this is how you're making my life difficult, but also this is how you're winning and something you can put in your performance report. And I became the go-to person for everybody to go, what can I put in my performance report about image sizes and image search and, you know, the improvements in page speed. And, and like, I literally had one of the engineers buy me a steak dinner because she was like, you, you just completely got me my bonus because you gave me all the metrics that I had no access to other wise because I don't understand how Omniture works and this was awesome. Thank you. <laughs> and so that was actually like I became their source for those metrics. And so I'd be like, okay, so image search, this is where your images are showing up in, in search results and show them the search console report and let them see which images are, are kicking ass and show them the, the searches and actually show them what the search results look like or the image carousels where those call outs were. Um, 
And suddenly they're, they're, like, they're like, oh, this thing I'm doing is actually visible on Google and they can like go home and show their kids, you know, and believe it or not, they do. They go home and show their wives and husbands that this is what they're doing because they're like, I learned something new today <laughs> and they get excited about it. And then all of a sudden you have buy-in, you have cooperation, you have, you have a teamwork that is cohesive. And then you can say, hey, as far as process improvement goes, can we you know, make saving files a smaller thing as part of your process. Ding! And then they like you and they'll do that. <laughs> it's the softer side of evil. <laughs> so this is how, why I'm passionate about training. <laughs> it's very important. Very important. Cool. We just beat the shit out of page speed. Yeah, I know. So one thing that I, I, kind of think ties into you know webmd in a way though it's not really webmd is that um google just bought fitbit and i know with apple they have <laughs> and i know with apple you know that apple just you know with their apple watch they do like the ecg stuff and they also now um just released their research apps where you can submit all your data to apple and the, just for general research because their goal and, and google has the same goal they want to figure out health while it's happening and hopefully while wearing a device, they could say like, Hey, you're about to have a heart attack. You better, you know, or, or all signs are pointing to this better go to a doctor. Um, and a little bit of me in there is like, you know, it, it's not right away, of course, but what if, uh, like it's also affected, like you went for a run and Google knew you went for running you get back and now you have an ad for Gatorade because Hey, you're parched. Or if you're, um, you know, your heart rate is up and it's nighttime and you, you know, Hey, here's an ad for melatonin. Maybe you're having trouble sleeping because we can track you now. Um, it, it, it's to me, it's kind of opened that up. Like not that Google's looking at it to be even, I think they are evil. I think they're really looking to, to figure out kind of health because anyone who can figure out health like that, I think makes a ton of money, but Google's also known for advertising and um, being able to, to pull ads around your Fitbit, uh, I think would be an interesting uh, dilemma where it comes with privacy. I mean, hopefully that there is privacy laws that prevent this, but I think there's always ways to figure that out. And I think coming from WebMD, talking about stress, doing everything like this, like there's going to be devices and there are devices that track all that. Um, and, so and how do they profit? It depends on which letter of the alphabet has access to the data. Yeah. Quite frankly. Um, interestingly, I, um, I won the lottery of, uh, we had big meetings that my boss and I both had to go, somebody had to go to at the same exact time. And one was in Mountain View and one was in Minnesota. <laughs> and I won the Mountain View visit, um, <laughs> which was, was really exciting. Um, my boss had to go to Minnesota. And um, I went with a team um, to the Google offices for this like show and tell day between Google and WebMD, they like did the WebMD cu cupcakes and everything. And they were showing us, they had people coming in from the various letters of the alphabet to show us the various things that they were doing in the health space, everything from the human genome tracking to, and they wanted to like sell us BigQuery and stuff like that before they rolled it out and stuff like that. But, um, you know, it was also exploring, is there a way we could be working on like their image recognition and the symptom checker and like actually exploring, could we work together in, in ways to, to kind of build some of this information? Because at this point, um, 
you know, this is three, four years ago, but at that point, the CDC was actually using the symptom tracker data to figure out flu outbreaks because we had faster data because people were plugging in their zip code as they were pl plugging in flu symptoms. And then the CDC was able to go, oh, this zip code is having a flu outbreak. Um, and, and so it was that kind of real-time information that we were talking about with them. And quite frankly, they had basically everything that you would have on a Fitbit on your Android device at that time. This is three, four years ago. They already had that. Anybody who had an Android phone, the same way that Google Health, I don't have an Apple Watch, but I still have my steps in my phone whenever I have my phone in my pocket. True. Um, and they had already cracked the code of figuring out, okay, this is a person walking on a sidewalk versus a bicycle versus a car based on where you were in the map on like GPS data and your rate of speed. Like, oh, you're on a scooter. We're not going to count that as a step. They'll actually be able to tell that based on your accelerometer and where you are like on the sidewalk or on the road. These are things that they could do years ago. And so with Fitbit being monetized, my feeling and, and that data being available to be monetized, really, it literally depends on where that, that data can go. Um, HIPAA as a privacy act and PII kind of information that can support, that can protect this, really honestly can't protect you all that much. Um, it's, <laughs> it, it can't protect you from like ad retargeting. Um, the reason why WebMD won't do ad retargeting on the stuff that you look up is because it's incredibly hot button because <laughs> can you imagine like do I have an STD or am I pregnant and then you know having those ads following you around that would be yeah. really really awful um, especially when you're in doing a presentation for a client right right <laughs> or if you're 15 you know so. oh yeah true when you're 15 yeah, yeah. Oh. Um, and so it's just one of those like that's a a it wasn't that they couldn't. It wasn't that they legally couldn't. It was that they wouldn't because it was a bad idea. <laughs> yeah. And so um, I think Google already could do all of those things if they wanted to. Um, sure. And yes, they are absolutely trying to crack the nut. They're doing a um, massive study with um, University of California in Berkeley, I think, um, where they have a clinic and they have like this lifetime study of people that they've taken every blood test known to man and they go in and do these like massive physicals like all the tests that you like never run like that your doctor just doesn't bother with unless you have a symptom they run all of them they also run all their dna markers they also run all of this stuff and then they watch and wait and see if they get sick and then if there's anything from that data that can actually be an earlier prediction of some sort of illness, um, whether from the genetic side or from like you had a blood test that was off for this vitamin when you were 12 and now you have this, you know, and that kind of thing. And they're using, they're attempting to use the big data concept to, to manage human, human health. Um, will they use it to gain financially? Oh, yeah. Um, mm -hmm. But I don't think that's a right away. I think that depends on who's, who, where the walls are yeah. and within the company, honestly. So I'm looking at Statista, and take this for what you will. Um, big data by 2020 is projected to be a $56 billion industry. And if you 
take that out by 2027, it's expected to almost double $103 billion. So like when you look at Google and you look at Amazon and, and of course my Google pixel just went off. So Google's listening to this. So they know what I'm doing and I'm going to turn that off because that's creepy. (laughs) (laughs) I don't want an Amazon result. (laughs) Every time I say seriously, Siri was clicking on and I had to like turn off all of her microphone (laughs) settings for that. Anyways. So Google being creepy. That's, and it's funny. It's funny that that happened because that's exactly what I'm, worried about. And I, and I don't know if you guys um, feel this way, but like everybody knows one of Google's big internal credos is don't be evil. And, and when I, when don't I, forget you, when, you are calling on the equal and opposite. Right. Right. And when I, um, <laughs> when I, when I heard about this acquisition, the, the first thing I thought was they, I don't know that they necessarily care about Fitbit as a company, they just want their data. And it's the same with, with Facebook. It's the same with Amazon as they go through the process of consolidating and acquiring all these companies. And it, and it kind of just seems like an arms race between some of these big companies to just acquire as many companies as they can. And I don't know that they care about the companies, but because data is projected to be such a massive, massive industry, the one who holds all the data is the one who can dictate the terms of whatever, whatever is going to be in the next um, 10 years. And I do feel like at some point, like because of the nature of Google, Google's a business. And like you said earlier, they're beholden to shareholders. So they've got to turn a profit. So you're damn right. They're going to use this data to their advantage and probably in some ways that are not, in, in my opinion, probably entirely ethical. So I don't yeah. know what you guys feel about that. Well, I mean, the the trick with big data um, has been up until recently, very recently. Um, the trick has been that very few companies have had the bandwidth and the ability to do anything about it. It's like they could collect all the data they wanted, but it was so much noise because how, how the hell were they going to parse it and understand it and do anything and, and pull any learnings out of it? Um, Google, Apple, Amazon are probably, you know, maybe, maybe Microsoft um, are the ones that I feel like have the capacity at this point to actually do something with their big data. Um, because you have to have both like the speed and the storage and the ability to actually and now analyze it. <laughs> and, um, and I feel like that you're right. They are just gathering their Scrooge McDuck in the gold in the, the house, you know, in the silo full of gold um, <laughs> going, we don't know what we're going to do with it, but we'll swim in it for now and then figure it out later. And, and yeah, I totally feel like that's what they're doing. I think that's what's happening with the echo and the pixels and all of that just, and Siri just having the microphones on all the time. Mm-hmm. Facebook is the only one that's used its microphone data in a way that people are going, I just talked about that. And now there's an ad and Ooh. And like, it, they were just too transparent with it. Like they, they literally were just too obvious. Everybody else is like just playing it cool. <laughs> yeah. And we are all the lobsters in the pot and all these companies are slowly raising the temperature and we're yeah. all going to be, Oiled before we realize what's happening. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, so let's um, 
so let's move out of the news to the last topic or to the kind of the deep dive. Um, and I also want to be respectful of respectful of time, but today we wanted to kind of deep dive into teaching. Um, Alicia, you have a passion for teaching, so I I just wanted to dive into like what's behind your love for teaching others, teaching SEO, so on and so forth. Um, well, like I said earlier, uh, I believe that the most important way to get buy-in from other parts of the company, from um, clients that have that are resistant to C-suites that are resistant to getting an allocation of resources, is education. Um, I think that teaching somebody in a way that is accessible to them and that matters to them, that speaks their language, is the number one way to get what you need to get done done. Um, my boss at WebMD actually had a really good thing that he used to say, which was, um, we don't actually do any SEO. We just convince everybody else to do it for us, which is pretty accurate because we had like some control over page titles, but like we had to have the editorial team write a thing and then the doctors review it. And then, you know, we could like stare at it and go, Hey, can we change this word? But we didn't really have a lot of control. All we had to, all we had at our disposal was education and you know buy-in from the 200 people in the building with us and um i find that that approach in the agency world actually really helps um because by giving education buy-in and success reports what you get is people who are much more invested you get clients that are going to renew you get like you get those clients that even if the results don't show up they start seeing like the little wins because they are educated they start understanding that this is stuff going on below the surface because they're educated if they understand the ctr hockey stick and what that graph looks like and i go yeah seo traffic is low because we're ranking number nine and we have a 0.3 percent click ctr i get that here's what it looks like when you move up the page <laughs> you know, and they understand what that hockey stick looks like when they really can get that, then they're like, all right, let's go for number seven, you know, like they get all in and that's, that buy-in is what makes us move the needle. That's where you get the resource allocation. That's where you get the people taking you seriously when you go really seriously page speed matters, y'all. Um, one of the things that I found that helps the most is speaking in terms of metaphors. Um, I honestly believe that a lot of the issues that come with SEO in our world <laughs> is that people get stuck in the jargon and they don't explain it in simple enough terms to make the other person actually understand. They're very, work, very concerned about sounding smart and being correct and not worried about the other person truly understanding, which I wear, I just wear like my teaching hat comes in so much, um, because I prefer not to use the jargon. Like you were, you were like, I don't want to use EAT. And I was like, yeah, exactly. I, I like, I won't use EAT. I'll say the context of your site matters. <laughs> and, and like, I'll take it all the way back to, to like when you were in third grade and you were learning from context clues, how to understand a sentence and you came across a big word and then your mom's like, figure it out. And, <laughs> you know, like I take them to the third grade with that. And then I walk them through understanding context clues as a Googlebot. And then I'm like, now understand Googlebot, you know, with Hummingbird, they became like a, a college freshman 
of understanding context clues. And I was like, and now they're like smarter than us. <laughs> and so, so it's the idea of contextuality. And then I'm talking in terms of context and not talking about EAT. I'm really talking about EAT, but I'm not using the jargon. Yeah. And I find that using that kind of teaching methodology tends to win people over and get them on board a hell of a lot faster. Um, other stuff that I taught, one of the things that is really funny is my, people at WebMD, the, the, the metaphors and phrases that I've coined, they thought were industry terms, so much so that they didn't know when somebody else didn't know it, that that was like, they were like, oh, clearly you have nothing, you know nothing about SEO, um, because I made it up. Um, the editorial team at WebMD thought that keyword cannibalization as a term was oogie. So I called it sibling rivalry and told them to pick a favorite child. It's the same thing. <laughs> but they all thought sibling rivalry was totally, totally an SEO term, like all over the world. And, and so it's the same concept. I'm like, the kids are arguing in the back seat. You want one of them to be in the front seat. So, you know, <laughs> shove the other one off into the ditch. And, um, and it's... <laughs> <laughs> and and like it's that concept of humor and like visual images yeah. where they're like okay i'm gonna pick a favorite child and, um, <laughs> that's a great and, analogy <laughs> and talking in those metaphors is i find really really helpful um i i use them constantly um one of the ones that the that i know a lot of my team is sick of hearing but it works so well <laughs> is I talk about 301 redirects are uh, permanent address changes with the U.S. Postal Service and how if you've moved around a lot and done a lot of those through a lot of uh, address changes with the Postal Service you know that if you do too many and too fast a time you lose bills and possibly checks <laughs> like that the, the Postal Service doesn't know how to find you things don't get forwarded to the right place every it, it's mayhem and so you want to do them with great care, great deliberation, and probably no more frequently than every six months. And comparing it to just an address change, which is what it is, but actually making it something that is real life that they can hold in their hands. Like you can actually hand somebody that U.S. Postal Service envelope and go, this is the thing you're doing with that 301 redirect. And if it's a 404, it just means you moved and didn't fill this out. You know, and, and you can like really explain server header responses by using this one stupid form from the post office. Um, but it's tangible and it's something they can think about. Like they can think about bills and checks coming in. They can think about like they have this tangible, relatable thing. They don't care what the numbers mean. They care what the actual effect is. And so that's the kind of thing that I use when I'm doing client education, as well as when I'm, when I'm talking to C-suite, I, I use these same, like, I'm not talking down to a person. I'm just assuming they don't give a shit what a 301 is. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they don't, they don't, they no. don't care to know. <laughs> they don't care what acronym I'm talking about. <laughs> they just want to know what, what they need to know. Um, and so those are the kinds of metaphors that I really, I, I get into using and people laugh um that i do it but quite frankly i find it is incredibly effective <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because you have people who understand oh we don't want to do too many 301s we'll lose bills <laughs> yeah <laughs> so, i have a question so there's like 
you know, we, we don't learn this in college, right? SEO in general is not being taught in schools. Maybe there's a class or maybe there's like some high level stuff, but we've learned, like I've spent countless and endless nights learning, trying, adding stuff, failing, getting stuff good, like reading, doing all this stuff to, to get to where I'm at. Um, and I've been doing that for the last 10 to 15 years and doing that. And I have a ton of experience doing that. Um, I mean, do you feel there's like a, an ethical responsibility for me to teach the less experience? I mean, I feel like I've learned a lot of it on my own, but in general, um, I mean, is there like the pay it forward mentality that would like, I should be sitting down with more junior telling them everything, teaching them everything I've learned in there. I, I know that in the SEO world, there's, there are some people who hold on to their knowledge and there's tons of people who share it. And, and, and I think I do share a good bit about it, but I think there's sometimes I'm just want to say, go, you know, Hey, go build a website <laughs> and then you'll learn how to do a redirect or you'll learn that something's, you know, when something breaks, like you're just not constantly having to, to call me, even though I do like being in that position where people call me, <laughs> it's like, a, it's like a weird thing, but I was wondering like kind of what you feel about some of that. So um, I've been exploring the idea of like creating a training program, um, like doing kind of like an online training kind of community. Um, And part of what I've explored with that is what are the skills that an SEO really needs to know? Um, I had uh, kind of an apprentice. We did an apprenticeship. Um, He's now a journeyman. (laughs) He's not yet a master, but he's a journeyman. He's off traveling and and doing his own thing with other masters. Um, He and I talked a lot about what skills do you need to know? Yeah, you need to know how to use the tools. You need to know um, which tools to use when and like the basics of what a client would expect. But the real key thing that I think... um, needs to be taught in school, needs to be taught in college, needs to be taught um, to our junior SEOs. And honestly, if I'm going to write a nonfiction book about SEO, this is going to be the topic. Um, The concept is of information validation and understanding and being able to, to understand your source and to think skeptically and critically about it. Um, because what you just said was that you went off and you read a whole lot and you tested a whole lot and you tried a whole lot and that's how you learned it. Um, that is information validation, selection, and, and critically thinking about it. What we have in the age of the internet is an information overload, but it's of all varying degrees of validity and value and usefulness. And like we've got there are SEO articles that people are still citing that are from 2008. And it's like, Oh honey, no. (laughs) And the thing is, is that That cut said (laughs) (laughs) exactly. Um, And, and so how do you, how do you assess that information and its validity? Because it could be about a best practice. It could be something that legitimately is still correct there are things from 2008 that like, you know, you should maybe have an alt tag for a screen reader that is a couple of words long about that image. Like there are things that they were saying in 2008 that were not wrong. Matt Cut still said stuff that wasn't wrong. The problem is applying that critical thinking to 
okay, how is that different today? How does that matter to me? Where does that come in? I feel the same way about reading anything that comes out of Google's mouth. Um, because there's a layer of, okay, here's the best practice. This is what they want. This is their desired state. <laughs> how does that actually reflect it in reality? Because they can say page speed really matters, but does page speed really matter? I need to know myself. Um, <laughs> and how is that reflected in reality? Because they're not saying where the money is. Because if you think about page speed as a factor and they want everybody on AMP, they want everybody to do this, they want everybody on that, they want everybody on Google Cloud services so that you can have your page speed and eat it too. The thing is, is that the money is in everybody's data going on AMP. The money is in everybody hosting on Google because it'll make their pages faster. The money is in all of these other things that is not necessarily page speed matters to users. Woo, we're not evil. And being able to see through those layers and articulate those layers of, of reality, they're not wrong. Page speed does matter. Users, there is no human being that's ever gone, gee, I wish this website were slower. But at the same time, you've got to read, you got to read between the lines that Google is a money-making apparatus and this is capitalism and you know, they're going to make a buck somehow. And so if, if that's, and, and so it's like, okay, so let's follow that money wherever it goes. So understanding and being able to tell, okay, is this a trusted source of information? That's why one of my SEO interview questions is always, what do you read to stay up to date? What news do you read to stay up to date on SEO? Because if they tell me a website that I think is complete malarkey, I'm going to be like, hey. <laughs> or I'll say, okay, why? Why are you reading that website? What is it about that website that you find useful? Because they might be like, oh, it's complete malarkey, but I read it for the comedy value. Like, I mean, <laughs> yeah. it, there's, there's a lot of reasons why somebody might look at those things. Um, or I read it because there's black hat tips in all of the, the comments or whatever. I don't know. Um, but the thing for me is it's about information evaluation. And if you're going to teach somebody anything, that's teaching Amanda Fish right there. Teaching them to because we're all skeptics every pair every seo that has like an old salty seo that i know is skeptical and paranoid every last one of us <laughs> the older and saltier we are the more skeptical and paranoid we are <laughs> i like you know, to say I, the more experienced we are <laughs> <laughs> but we we are skeptical and paranoid and and I think that the worst SEO is a gullible SEO. And if you feel compelled to train a junior up, I feel like that is the skill to train them. Okay. That is the thing, that is the thing to hand on to if you want to be Yoda, that's what you give Luke because he's going to run off before you're done training him anyway. <laughs> but and and the thing that that my apprentice kept running into was i don't know how to do that i don't know anything about that i was like i run into shit i don't know how to do every day you learn how to google it <laughs> you learn how to look up 17 sources on that one topic and like do a complete brain dump and then go all right this is how i'm going to test this and that's how you learn so i think the the overarching question still remains if you're a person that has a lot of experience, should you, not, maybe not can you teach somebody else, should you, should you, is it worth your time? I think that depends on the person. 
I think it depends on the person because um, our industry is so rife with weird, complex battles and drama and so much of the like old stuff still getting sold and the snake oil still getting done. And I can't tell you how many people go, oh, I hired for somebody for SEO and I got really burned by it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I hear that daily. And is it our, if we are passionate about this as a, as a effort, as a career, as a vocation, um, is it our calling and requirement to build others who are not shoddy snake oil salesmen, you know? Um, I, I honestly believe that that's a, that's a personal question. Um, I personally was really burned out. I still am kind of burned out on SEO. And I find that teaching and training is a way for me to tap into a passion and be excited about it and feel like I'm doing good in the world instead of just getting more Google visitors to this website. Like it's, um, <laughs> it's a way that gives me meaning. Um, and I think that if it's meaningful for you and it does give you meaning, then absolutely you should. Um, should everybody? I mean, probably not. And why, I guess, why would you say that? Um, I mean, not everybody is going to be a good trainer teacher and they might teach not wrong things, but they might, they might teach things that are, um, that do a disservice to others. Um, I mean, not everybody's set up to be a guru. You know, that's, that's the whole self-proclaimed guru thing, isn't it? I, let me be your master. Like, it's, it's ridiculous. <laughs> um, not everybody has that, has those chops. Um, and, and to know what, like, like I was saying, the difference between teaching a person to fish versus, you know, having them come back to me every time, having this apprentice that was sitting here every day, um, I needed him to know it was okay not to know everything and how to go find that out more than I needed him to know here's the checklist to fill out for these 10 steps to do this thing. Right. Um, yeah. And so uh, it depends on where you are. I know that a lot of people really feel like they don't want anybody else's bad habits. So they want to like grow their own juniors from the start and be like, Oh, I want this like fresh new mind to, to mold as I wish. Um, and that's, that is absolutely a valid way to go about things. Um, but I do find that you find blind spots in that because that, that new person doesn't learn how to think in new ways without you. That's why an apprentice has to go be a journeyman. Often there, they might be your own blind spots. If you're molding them to reflect who you are and you have blind spots, well, they're going to have those blind spots as well. And yep. I, I think, um, let me use a Star Wars analogy because it kind of sounds like we're talking about like Sith Lords here, but, um, <laughs> If you're, a, if you're a Padawan and uh, you're looking at someone as your, as your, your Yoda, your, your Jedi uh, trainer, um, how do you know if, you're, if your person that you're looking up to is completely full of crap? <laughs> is it a Qui-Gon or a Palpatine? Right, right. Um, <laughs> yeah. um, 
Yeah. Well, that comes down to that question of information, information, articulation, and understanding. Can you, can you tell whether that person is completely full of crap or not? Um, a lot of people get sucked in by fake gurus all the time. Um, I honestly think that a junior SEO, the clearest way would be to talk to another master. You know, if, if you're talking to a Qui-Gon, talk, talk to the Obi-Wan, talk to the, you know, talk to Yoda, talk to some of the other guys and see what's going on. Um, and if they go, oh, you're studying with him? Hmm. <laughs> you know, kind of crowdsource that information. But also I think uh, understanding and, and knowing how to look up that information for yourself and double checking it is really important. Yeah, I think I would I would tend to agree, and I feel like I I'm giving you these questions uh, as as playing devil's advocate. I I am one of those people that feel like um, that feel like we do as more experienced people have maybe not an ethical responsibility, but some sort of responsibility to pay it forward because there were people that felt responsible to pay it forward to me. Um, early on in my career. So I think I'm to some degree always going to be trying to do that. But I also realize that not everybody's passionate about that. Not everybody's good at that. Um, not everybody wants to do that. I will say for myself, the in my career, more so than working with clients or any other thing, the, um, the area where I found the most fulfillment was when I was doing the the teaching and helping shape shape young minds quote unquote uh, teaching them teaching them how to fish and and even more happy for me was watching them then go out and fish and then take what they started with me and branch off and develop it even further and then watching them start to teach other people how to fish like you have no idea how amazing for me that felt like selfishly um in not that I think I'm like super great or, or anything, anything like that, but it, it was for me a, a real badge of honor to watch people that I um, helped to bring up, helping to bring other people, other people up. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah. I will say that there, there are people out there that are just, I remember early on in my career, there was a certain couple of people um, early on in my career, I had created a blog that I called a H and SEO as just kind of a way to, well, blogging was big at the time. And I just, just like this podcast, I had a creative itch and I wanted to get it out there. So I would post SEO, SEO content. And they got so mad at me for quote unquote, sharing the industry trade trade secrets. And I just never quite, um, understood. And these people were supposed to be my quote unquote teachers. Um, and this was talking a lot about data. This was a data point for me that my teachers were idiots, complete idiots, <laughs> complete, complete. And maybe they weren't idiots, but like, I just felt like they were off base. And for me, that was a point, um, a, a turning point for me in relation to my ability to, um, to trust them. I, I was never really able to trust them, but I also think, okay, we're thinking about this from the perspective of the people teaching. Um, and Jeff, you said an interesting, an interesting thing, go build a website. I think that those folks coming up 
in, in the space have just as much responsibility, um, like you said, Alicia, to go out and validate and test and learn. Um, they have just as much responsibility to go out and do that. And I have to admit, sometimes I don't necessarily see the level of proactivity that I would like um, with, with the young folks coming up in the industry. <laughs> now that I'm one of the older folks, um, I, I would like to see more of that. Um, coming from folks that are that are new in the industry, just you know, a curiosity or hey, I want to go try building a website just to just to break things, just to see what will will happen. And I fully realize that's not for everybody, but I do think that as much as the experienced folks, uh, the old guard has a responsibility to teach people, uh, especially if you're good at doing it. Uh, the people coming up have a responsibility to not just wait to be taught, to go figure things out uh, as much as possible. But that's yeah. it. That's my diatribe. <laughs> I agree with you that it is, it is a, and that's, you know, mythological studies going back to the, to my grad degree, um, the guru relationship, the, the person who's the student does have that kind of responsibility. They have to go do their work um, in those real real situations they they have a lot more work to do than um than the teacher does really um <clears throat> you made me think of a thing that a manager said to me once um and this is way back in the bell south days and this manager took me aside and said um you have a lot of knowledge and you're mistaking that knowledge for power but knowledge is only powerful when you share it. And that is kind of where I come from on all of this, is that knowledge is only powerful when I'm sharing it with other people. Yeah, that's actually a powerful statement. <laughs> so Awesome. Well, I mean, I think that's going to be really careful of time because we're, we're pushing an hour and a half now. So, um, no, <laughs> so I'm giving awesome. you lots of editing homework. Yeah, no, it's great. And, and <laughs> you know, I, I guess my final thoughts on that aspect was I really feel that um, I am willing to teach, um, but you have to be willing to learn. And um, when, you know, some things are complicated, right? And doing any types of coding or any types of tech, I focus on technical side a lot. It's, it's, there are some people who just, who always want to know it, but really don't, there's a lot of time you got to put into doing it. And, and it's, if I don't feel that you're hundred percent into it, I feel like I might be wasting my time and time is more, you know, valuable than, than any of this. So, um, but I wanted to thank you for coming on to the show and I, you know, we're going to, uh, I don't think we're gonna have much editing. I think we have some really great content going on here and, and I'm hoping that the, the world gets to listen to it all. Well, thank you so much for having me. It was a, it was a pleasure. It's thank a good you. way to start Friday. Yes. <laughs> cool. Bye, everybody. All right. Thank you, guys. Right. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Page 2 Podcast. If you'd like to find out more about the show or listen to more episodes, visit us at page2podcast.fm. That's page, the number two, podcast.fm. Our episodes are also available on a number of other platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Breaker, Deezer, Overcast, Pocket Cast, Stitcher, TuneIn, and more. 
Additionally, you can also listen to our show on our new YouTube channel. If you'd like to become a sponsor or would like to be interviewed, get in touch with us at thepage2podcast at gmail.com. Until next time, happy optimizing.